In this episode of So Dramatic, my guest is educator and coach Patrick Flanagan. Patrick and I talk about the musician Brian Wilson. In this two-part episode, we learn that Brian's life was not just cars, girls, and surfing. Here's part one. This is a very special episode. This has been a long time coming. Um, long time listener, first time guest, right? My very special guest, Patrick Flanagan, the love of my life. And it's truly not just because we're in a pandemic and we're in quarantine that I- And I'm the only guest you can get here <laughs> safely. Out of the three people I'm living with, you're the only one who said yes. <laughs> no, this is a long time coming, but... I wonder it's season three. Yeah, season three, but you're, like I said, this is going to be a long one, and so I feel like uh, this is going to be a very special one. Well, we have nothing but time. So, Patrick. Yes. I have been thinking of this. What, what would I ask you about? Who would I talk with you about? Because you and I have... Especially with music, I'd say. That's probably our biggest connection. We talk about music a lot. We listen to music a lot. We um, don't always like the same kind of music. But sure. there is some overlap, and it does. it is a way that we um, connect. We love going to see live bands. We love going to you know Nashville and all that kind of stuff. So that's something that's a big part of our relationship. So I had a few people in mind for this. Did you think at all about who I would talk with you about? I thought it would be music. I pretty much ruled out Bob Knight right away. Yeah. And a couple other coaches, but uh, I figured it would be music. I have, uh, you know, a couple of guests, but, uh, you know, I, I was a little nervous because I don't know a whole lot about a lot of these people. So here's what's funny is because you said that a few times when I was talking about it. You're like, I hope I don't mess this up. And I hope I it's like, but you've listened, you have been my biggest fan. Well, this is all due to you because you bought all this equipment for me and said you have to do this. So this wouldn't exist without you. But you've listened to every episode. So you know how it works. And you know, people come over here and are nervous. And, and the point is, they don't need to know anything. They don't need to. I, I don't try to pick someone. You're that, right. I know, but uh, everyone that I've listened to so far has, um, you know, really added to the conversation, okay. and that's where my nerves <laughs> kick in. I don't know if I can add anything. Okay, but hold to on. The conversation. That's because I've chosen someone who I think that. Are you going to drink your tea the entire time that we're recording? I see people do that on talk shows all the time. I know, but we're not video. I know, but I got to keep the pipes wet. <sighs> Okay, so Patrick, are you ready to find out? So did you have any guesses for any person who you thought? Um, what did you say? I wasn't listening. <laughs> yeah, no, I have no guesses. Okay. Okay, I think you're going to be surprised. Okay, let's get to it. Okay, Patrick, I chose Brian Wilson of the really? Beach Boys. I was just talking about him yesterday. You were? What yes. were you saying? Uh, a friend of mine and a uh, former uh, guest on your podcast, uh, Stephen Kent, mm -hmm. 
and I were talking about uh, pet sounds. Yes. And we were talking about uh, just how music helps us get through this mm -hmm. pandemic. Mm -hmm. And um, he was kind of um, brought to light about about pet sounds mm -hmm. and about the um, you know how inspirational the album it was to many other musicians. So we talked about that quite a bit. Wow, that's interesting. And that was yesterday, huh? Just yesterday, yeah. yeah. Okay. So you know that I'm not a fan. No, you hate the Beach Boys. <laughs> Ironically, Nancy Beach, I'm not a Beach Boys fan. I don't I don't like it. It's not my favorite. I've never been a fan. I found it too poppy. I thought I thought he was weird. So I thought, well, I'm just going to look at this because I know that you don't feel that way. And I thought, well, there's something here. And so, like I said, to, you know, I, I started to research this. And this was probably, this took me probably the longest to research out of any topic I've done. There's so much out there and about him. And so I have to preface this by saying I'm, I can't cover everything and I will definitely miss stuff. So if anyone's like a huge Brian Wilson fan and you're getting mad that I left something out, but there's some really cool stuff that I found that made this oh, super interesting for me. And like I said, I kind of thought, you know, what would be something that you'd be interested in that you could appreciate again like i said because i don't necessarily but so i started to research and like i said i can't even tell you all the sources i use because there were i when i started this and i started to write this i had 60 pages of notes and so i had to kind of go down from there and it was just it was it, it's a lot so i kind of had to narrow it down to what i thought was interesting so here's here's the spiel so he's a musician a singer songwriter record producer, co-founded the Beach Boys. Um, he co-wrote more than two dozen top 40 hits. Uh, in addition to his unorthodox approaches to pop composition and mastery of recording techniques, he's known for his lifelong struggles with mental illness. He's often referred to as a genius and is widely acknowledged as one of the most innovative and significant songwriters of the late 20th century. You agree with that? I do agree with that, yes. Okay. So, Even though you say he sings off key all the time. He does. He, to me, he sings off key, and okay. I don't like it. So there was an article I read, and it started out saying this. It said, lives are messy, and maybe that's why we try to put them in little boxes with neatly printed labels. Albert Einstein becomes a brilliant physicist. Ezra Pound is a crazy poet. Actors, musicians, authors, scientists all boil down to a handful of words. Such has become the case for Brian Wilson. He's the troubled musical genius. And in this soundbite version of the Beach Boys' life, there's the California Girls, Good Vibrations, Pet Sounds album, an invented West Coast soundscape of fast cars, pretty girls, and endless summers. Genius. What we have from the Beach Boys is such an unmistakable sound that it's instantly recognizable. You hear the Beach Boys, and within 10 seconds, you know it's them. But then there's a sandbox in the house, and the endless days in bed, and the substance abuse, and flying too high and crashing so fast. Lying in bed just like Brian Wilson did, and that's become as defining an image as any. It's accurate, but it's hardly adequate. Let's be honest. With this pandemic, we're about a week away from a sandbox in the living room. <laughs> so I was trying to think of a title for this. <laughs> and it's like it's like the quarantine episodes, lying in bed just like Brian Wilson did. Right. Right? I mean, right. that's got. I'm thinking that's our title. So that's what I like. So, yes, that's true, but that's not the whole story. And so I went, I went through, like I said, down the rabbit hole of researching Brian Wilson. All right. So are you okay with this? Is I'm this... great. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, and so, like I said, too, I, because we are quarantined, I'm not able to print this out and edit this the way I usually do. So if I repeat myself, just 
just punch me. I'm used to it. <laughs> should I should I tap on my chest, on chest to warn you that you're repeating the story? <laughs> That's an inside family joke. That. All right. Well, let's explain it. <laughs> so, we when my mom repeats herself, my mom's ninety three. And if she repeats herself and she's telling a story and like, instead of saying, Hey, you've already said that, like embarrassing her in front of other people, we do this little tap on our chest. (laughs) (laughs) So we've kind of done it in our family. It's sort of mean, but it's funny too. Oh, it's funny. Okay. So he is the oldest of Audrey and Murray Wilson. So here already, I hate the parents because she spells her name A-U-D-R-E-E and he spells Murray M-U-R-R-Y. It's like you're both you're an ass what are you doing where's your a in murray right <laughs> did they spell it or did yeah. their parents spell well the, the parents themselves spelled it right, right. so that well their parents oh i right. get what you're saying parents, yeah, yeah but it's who knows it's just a weird pretension right um so he's got two younger brothers dennis and carl so 19 june 20th 1942 was when he was born so he had really unusual musical abilities, even prior to his first birthday. His dad said that he could repeat the melody of a song after only a few verses had been sung. And so Murray, with a Y, said he was very clever and quick, and I just fell in love with him. About the age of four, he was discovered to have diminished hearing. There's lots of stories about why, but basically he was partially deaf. I think it was from either his dad hitting him or something else, but no one's really sure. In a more recent interview about his dad, Brian Wilson says that his dad was tough. His dad was quite the slave driver. He made us mow the lawn, and when we were done, he'd say, mow it again. That's just the way it was. Mow it twice, do it right. He was just one of those crazy dads. Um, he was The dad was had lot, lots of bouts of depression, easily provoked to rage. And then among the brothers, the middle son, Dennis, was kind of rebellious. He would shoot out windows with a BB gun, set fires, cut class, and enjoy um, surfing. So Dennis was, out of the brothers, he was the only one who really surfed. And Carl, the youngest, was typically kind of the peacemaker. Brian, being the oldest, was super sensitive. And his dad actually would kind of, like, take advantage of that, that he was so sensitive. And uh, his dad lost an eye in an industrial accident. And so when he'd be mad, he would take his fake eye out and grab Brian by the neck and, like, force him to look into the empty eye socket. That would get me to do the dishes. I would mow the lawn three times for that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Lots of stories about the dad being abusive. You know, later on, he kind of screwed them over when he would sell off their publishing company. And that just kind of screwed them. He was their manager, right? Yeah. 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 So a minor musician, songwriter, Wilson's father, Murray, encourages children in the music field in lots of ways. Brian Wilson himself was self-taught music theory. He actually played the toy accordion first, then started with the piano and then the bass guitar. And he would basically play by ear. He would just hear it and he could play it back. When he was in high school, he was on the football team. He was actually the quarterback for a while. He played baseball, cross country. Um, And then he sang at lots of school functions with his family and friends. And he would teach his two brothers how to sing harmony. Um, He played piano obsessively. He would get home and he would play for hours and hours and hours after school. He got a tape recorder and then he would kind of experiment with different sounds, taping things, having vocals, kind of learning that harmony, that kind of stuff, kind of self-taught. One of the earliest performances was at a fall arts program at his high school. And he asked his cousin, Mike Love to um, join him and they wanted the brother Carl to get in it too and the way they got Carl to do it was they 
they named it after him. They called it Carl and the Passions. So that Carl was like, hey, it's named <laughs> you after you. you got to be in it. you got to right. be in it. Um, and a lot of people said that that was super cool. And one of the, his classmates, Al Jardine, who would later join the Beast Boys, right. saw that and thought, hey, these guys are really good. He enrolled in community college, and then he was studying um, psychology and music studies. Now, what did the, the dad was in the industry? The dad was sort of a... Uh, wanted to be I think well wanted I don't remember if he was in the industry I think I don't think he was officially in it I forget I was just questioning that because uh, if you say they have a piano at the house I didn't know and they definitely were encouraged had, to play music yeah I referred to him as a musician and a machinist so you know I think it was sort of a, an interest of his as well so 1961 the Beach Boys were formed. Actually, they weren't called the Beach Boys. They had a different name. But Dennis, Carl, uh, Mike Love, their friend Al Jardine, and Brian. So the, the five of them joined a group. They really were influenced by like 50s rock and roll and jazz. And Brian was basically like the songwriter, the producer, the lead vocalist, bassist, keyboardist, de facto leader right from the start. So they basically, the Beach Boy songs, they define the surf, the stand, the allure of Southern California. And after being encouraged by Dennis to write a song about local water, the water sports craze of surfing, Brian Wilson and Mike Love created Surfing. And that over Labor Day week in 1961, Brian took advantage of the fact that his parents were in Mexico City. And the boys used the emergency money his parents left to rent an amplifier and a microphone and a stand-up bass for Jardine to play. And after the boys rehearsed for two days in the music room, his parents returned. They played the song for their dad, and he was really impressed. And he said, hey, I'm your, now I'm your manager. This is great. And they started rehearsals and um, looking for proper studio sessions. So that was 1961. So the band would be kind of split between, like, you'd have Mike Love and Al Jardine were sort of the the mediators. They were kind of the the guys who kind of kept everyone balanced. And Dennis and Carl were the super crazy partiers, and we're going to learn about that. And Brian was kind of in the in-between. He was sort of the, definitely kind of would party, but he sort of kind of floated in between. So there was, you know, kind of divided. So Surfing became a top local hit in L.A., uh, reached number 75 on Billboard charts. And they described it as the first time that uh, they heard the song. They were, the three of them were driving in their car, and they just said the, nothing will ever top for them to look on Brian's face when that was playing on the radio. They said it was just the best moment of their lives. But it was funny because the record company who had recorded it with them changed their name from the Pendletons, which was their original name, to the Beach Boys without telling them. So they were just then the Beach Boys from then on. Well, it makes sense. They're yeah. doing surf music. Yeah, yeah. Right? Pendletons is kind of dumb, but who cares? Right. I don't get so that. they actually they did actually do a set with Ike and Tina Turner. They performed like some really live shows, this uh, Richie Valens memorial dance in like 1961. And just three days before that show for the Richie Valens, his dad bought Brian a bass and gave it to Brian. And he, in two days, like he learned how to play it, you know, just amazing ability. Right. I don't, I do not have that talent, that musical talent at all. Yeah. That's kind of what uh, Steve and I were talking about. Yeah. Uh, these guys that, uh, you know, you have two different parties, guys that know music and can write music. Yeah. And, you know, there's other guys that don't know how to write music at all and don't right. know any music theory but just can play they yeah. can teach themselves to play yeah. and, it's, and meanwhile steve and i can't do either <laughs> and i also think sometimes i i prefer i'm always 
surprised when someone's singing a song and it's so passionate, so amazing, and then I find out they didn't write it, and I'm I feel kind of betrayed. Yeah. Like what? No, that you had to write that. that. That to me means more if they write it and play it than if they're like, oh, here's just I got I bought this from some songwriter. Right. No doubt. Um, now covers. You know how I I appreciate yeah covers, but those are different, especially if they just appreciate the song and appreciate the artist and then want to do it as a tribute. Right. Right. But yeah, that, but back then that was very popular to just give songs yeah. to other people and write songs and for people. And that bugs me too, like about Sia. Like she's just, she just writes a shitload of songs and then just sells them to people. And it's yeah. like, ugh, I, I don't know. It just, I, I guess to me, it, it takes out the passion of it. Right. So I, I, well, I, they could be not very good singers or, Right, right. Be able to write music. Yeah, I know. But not have the voice, so I can see that. Can't blame them for for writing it. It just bugs me. Right. No, you want to, you feel that it's, they own that song. There's something inauthentic then, if they Mm. hadn't written it. Right. Does that make sense? No, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Who was that we were just talking about that covered the song? And then the original artist said uh, he felt like he no longer owned the song. Oh, yeah. What was that? Who are we? It was an 80s song, right? Yes. Oh, it was uh, XTC. The XTC Dear God song. And then I believe Sarah McLaughlin covered it. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. And then um, Partridge said that uh, he he's the guy who wrote the song for XTC and he said uh, after he heard her version that he felt like he no longer owned the okay. song, that it okay. was hers. Yeah. But you have that thing, too, where you you don't like it when it sounds the exact same, right? Right. So that, like, Africa song or whatever? Right. When Weezer covered Africa, Toto's Africa, right. it sounded identical. Right. Now they also cover, you know, like Jay-Z music, yeah. and it's, it's awesome because yeah. it puts a different twist on you know, a different, whole different genre of music, which yeah. I like. Yeah. There's something to be said for, like, someone to be able to copy it. We're like, because you know what we do when we go out to see live bands. Right. <laughs> and it's like a, a band I don't know. And I get really pissed when they play, like, their own stuff because I'm like, I don't want to hear you. I don't know your songs. Yeah. I don't know you. I don't know your stupid songs. Right. My, well, <laughs> there's a couple stories there. My, our favorites <laughs> is when we go see cover bands. Yes. And they're selling CDs. <laughs> Of the cover music of like a Beatle knockoff band selling, you know, CDs. Right. Which, um, you know, I don't get because I can still buy the Beatle CD. Right. Right. But I do like, and this kind of gets back to what I was having my conversation with uh, with Steve about, about bands that can't do covers uh, when they first started out and right. became really popular band because they yeah, didn't too. know how mm-hmm. to play music. Yeah. Right. So they couldn't do cover songs. Yeah. So they just came up with their own stuff. And I find that to be, you know, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But I kind of, I like, there's, so there's times where if we'll go out and I see a band, I'm like, I want it to sound like the other band. Yeah. Or I want it to sound like that version. But I know what you mean when you're like, if I, if you're going to do a cover or something, it's kind of neat to have it reinterpreted. Right. You know? Right. Okay. So they, after, so Surfin' was their first big hit, and then after that they wrote Surfin' Safari. I, what's the difference? I don't know. Right. Um, now, were all those first gigs, they were all in California? Yeah. Okay. 
um, yeah, they were doing stuff. And it, this is, I mean, this is pretty, this, so we're talking like 1961, end of 61, 62. So this stuff's happening pretty fast. He's like 21. And that's one of the things too, that a lot of the people who I've talked about my podcast, they're so young yeah, and what they're able to do and to know right away, like, I have to do this. I have to create this way. I have to make music this way. That that's what amazes me. He's not, you know, 40, 50 year old guy who spent his life figuring. He's just immediately like, here's what I've got to do. Here's the sound I want to create. Well, I, I think a lot of young people have that. Have, right. That's, you know, that time in their life where they. But the problem is a lot of people fail at what their first choice was. Yeah. Or don't then, pursue or it. Or don't pursue it. Yeah, right. Because it's hard. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, again, I fall back on my practicality it's like i that's i'm too practical you know to right. take those kinds of risks or don't have that confidence right so it you know it takes it takes that it takes a lot of that there's just some stuff going back and forth kind of some infighting in the band already the candix records that set, that first produced that record they ran into money problems and they end up selling the beach boys master recordings to another label and when they did that the father Murray terminated the contract, and then he made a deal with Capitol Records. Murray does the deal. So here's just the here's how the deal went, just so you can kind of get an understanding of, of him and w what he's doing, okay? So the conversation goes like this. He goes to Capitol Records, and they say, what do you want, Mr. Wilson? And he opens up his wallet, and it's empty, and he goes, I just paid the boys my last $1,000. I need 300 And they go, is that that's all you want? He goes, 300 the record company man later said he had the authority to sign the Beach Boys for $50,000. Yeah. He, he signed them for $300. Right. What a dick. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to know what kind of business he was in before that. They said he was a machinist. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So he wasn't used to making any deals or anything like that. No, so it, and it wasn't like this. And again, initially you're like, oh, you know, maybe he's in it for the money or he's in it. It's like, what do you do? Like, must have really needed a $300. <laughs> right. They, they could have got 50000 So, um, Surf and Safari is released with, in 409. Was 409? 409, 409 is it, do you know that yeah. one? I don't know. About a car. Okay. So they are right, recording. They're all about either cars, girls, or surfing. Oh, wait, wait. Sorry. Say that again. What are the, I'm, what are the topics again? Cars, Cars girls, girls, or surfing. surfing. Right? Okay. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So they were recording in Capitol's basement studios, but Brian wanted a different place for them to record. He didn't like these giant rooms with these orchestras and were ensembles, but he didn't like that. He wanted something smaller. And so he insisted, he said, you know, we'll pay, we'll even pay for our own time outside recording somewhere else and you can own the rights, but then you give us a higher royalty. So on the record sales. So that was the deal that Brian Wilson made, not his dad. And then he also, Brian Wilson fought to be in charge of the production of it. Right. So 1963, the Beach Boys recorded their first top 10 cresting number three in the U.S., Surf in USA. 
that started their long run of highly successful recordings. He started this to use this double tracking on group's vocals. So it kind of gave it a deeper, more resonant sound. You know, so it goes back to that first having that tape recorder when he was, you know, whatever, 16 or whatever, and doing his own and learning how to create these sounds right. with just a tape recorder. You remember how we used to record to record songs off the radio and you'd hold the tape recorder oh, yeah. up to the speaker? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we didn't resell those. Though, I was one step away case. from being Brian Wilson. Right. Right. One step away. So they're touring. Uh, they're recording. They're touring. There's a lot of stories about the tours and what was going on. It sounds like pretty. Su- and again, think about. So if Brian's the oldest. He's 21. 20s, right. Right. The, the brothers are younger. So these guys are teenagers. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they're making money now. They're touring. They've got girls. They've got. It's pretty. It's imagine. Right. Right. Pretty right. awesome. I mean, could you imagine if you had money and you were in high school? That age, a yeah, teenager. Right. I mean, if you're and you're life playing in front of different. thousands of girls who right. you know are throwing themselves at you, which was happening. Your bad choices would have been really bad <laughs> if you had money, right? Yes. Me and my friends remind ourselves that all the time. Yeah, this is kind of the point where they they felt their songs were a little limited, so then they started to write the songs about the cars, because before that was just girls and surfing. Then they added the right third the cars, cars that little deuce coupe. They wrote in October 63. And so they had this guitarist guy who was with them for a while. And then he quit. And so Brian had to tour again. Brian did not like touring. He was not a big fan of that. Was kind of, you know, more of an introvert. And that was sort of difficult for him. The other guys could sing. He could work on recording and writing songs. And they could tour. And he didn't, wasn't necessarily forced to tour until this guy left. And then he had to kind of join in. So basically the early part of his career, he's writing one ode to surfing after another. What's ironic, though, is he was terrified of water right? and avoided surfing entirely. He would not surf. In fact, like I said before, none of the brothers except Dennis was the only one who was, was surfing. Um, so they would explain to Brian about what it was like and, right. and where to surf and that kind of stuff. But he actually had a, a terrible fear of water. The decade of the 60s, he's trying to establish himself as a record producer. He starts working with other artists and producing, like Jan and Dean. He's working with them, and he's really happy. He's very successful. Surf City, he wrote with them. and But Murray's getting really pissed, and Capitol Records is getting kind of pissed. They're like, you know, no, you can't work with other people. So... He kind Murray kind of intervenes with that and makes him stop. Wilson actually tried to form a girl all girl version of the Beach Boys, like the Honeys they were called. It's so, sort of like a female counterpart and um, sort of to compete with like the Ronettes, like right. Phil Spector's groups like that. But that was a, that was thwarted as well. But that would I think that might be kind of interesting to hear that. Now going going back to him not surfing. Yes. Um, does. That kind of, like, if you knew that at the time, um, you know, as you talked about um, people giving their music to other people. Yeah. I mean, what about people writing music about things that they don't really do or know about? Right. Um, yeah. You know, if you knew that at the time, you'd probably, uh, I don't know if, uh, good thing that secret didn't get out. Let's. Uh, I think, it de- again, it depends on your audience. Because, like we were saying, some it depends on what your musical aesthetic is, right? What's important to you? What do you like? Does that matter to you? Is it just a great song? And you're like, I don't really care. You know? Yeah. I'm, I always like the lyrics side, what they're singing about. Now I do know they 
they did sing a, a you know a lot of stuff that was just at the surface and right not uh very deep kind of stuff but you would at least like to think that it was something that they did or believed in right right uh, so that kind of throw I, that i've learned something today <laughs> i didn't know that he and was terrified of what <laughs> Yeah, absolutely terrified. The first they talks about too, like the first time he saw I knew the he ocean. He was afraid of a lot of things yeah. too. The ocean's scary, um, yes, right? Yes. Well, I, mean, I, I, you know, I'm not questioning him because I yeah. never surfed myself. Yeah, but the fact that this is something that you're not, and to then be associated with it, and then to have right. this connection, I mean, it's got to be interesting. So um, they basically, you know, they start. They have the super rigorous touring schedule and again i go back to this idea that there's so many shows that we see where the, the people are they're making them tour these managers right so we go back to elton john we go back to freddie mercury right. um Katy perry um lady gaga so all these people who are like you see the managers like pushing oh they've got to do you know 100 100 gigs and this many. why well why? that's how the business worked back then right now promotion. it's working like that now yeah. And they're burned out and they're miserable. Like if you saw the Katy Perry um, documentary, she's hysterical sobbing three seconds before she's got to be on stage because she just can't take it. It's like, well, what are we doing? Why? And yeah, who's well, they, behind they've this? They've seen so many careers that have just been so short. Well, that's my point. Why are they so short? Because you burned them out. Is it? Or because they want to, you know, try to capture that audience that they have and ride it out as much as they can. I guess, but uh, because they know there's got to, there's got to be a balance. Might be a cutoff. So if we're seeing the story over and over and over again, so at some point it's like, so what these record companies are doing is they're taking these people, they're wearing them out, then they're moving on to somebody else because they burn these people out. So we're going on to the next big thing. So it just amazes me that riding a wave that no maybe. one that, Musicians aren't like uh, we're not doing this, you know. Who was who else did we see? Maybe it was Elton John that that was the most recent one that we watched, right? We've been watching a lot of things on Netflix yeah. this um, this pandemic. Yeah, I think it was Elton John. So they've got this crazy schedule, and so December nineteen sixty four, he has a complete panic attack, breaks down on a flight from LA to Houston and he just had to stop performing live he couldn't do it anymore he was completely at his wits end and so he's just like I'm just going to do songwriting and studio production and he later explains he says I felt I had no choice I was run down mentally and emotionally because I was running around jumping on jets from one city to another one night stands also producing writing arranging singing planning teaching to the point where I had no peace of mind and no chance to actually sit down and think or even rest and guess who came in as his temporary replacement, which I thought this was really funny. Oh, I know this. Um, oh, I forget. Glenn Campbell. Glenn Campbell. Yeah. That's right. Isn't that funny? I yes. didn't know that. Didn't we? I think I saw that on the the old Ken Burns special. Oh, on the um, country music? On the oh, country okay. music. Can we get a plug in for that? Which I, at, uh, though you know me, I hate country music. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I really love Ken Burns and all the stuff that he does, yeah. but he, he's so good that he made me interested in country yeah. music. Well, again, I love good stories. 
Right. That, those are He's great a good stories. Those are great stories. And so and Glenn Campbell is a great And another great reason story. too why uh, you're probably a history teacher is that you love the stories, right? Right. You get good stories and that's that, you know, whatever it is, that's what history is, a bunch of good stories. He also talks about the fact that this is kind of around the time he started to take LSD, took a full dose, and then would take smaller doses. And he said, I learned a lot of things like patience and understanding. I can't teach you or tell you what I learned from taking it, but I consider it a very religious experience. So that's around the time he started taking LSD, which Hmm. is not a good idea. Um, his friend also introduced him to pot at that time. So we started to take that for the stress. It helped alleviate some stress. It said it inspired creativity. They finished another album. They're working on, so they're working on all these albums. He talked again about his, this acid trips that he would on and like stuff that he'd write. The music for California Girls came from his first LSD experience. He continued to use these kinds of drugs for the next few years, even during recording sessions. Basically, from that point, because of that first LSD trip for the rest of his life, even today, he suffers from auditory hallucinations. Auditory hallucinations. He hears voices all the time. Hmm. All the time, constantly. Right. So imagine decades of that. So that, I thought, was really explains a lot because you don't know what's real and you don't know what's not. Right. If you're having these auditory hallucinations, crazy. Um, 1964 to 79, he was married to uh, his wife, Marilyn, and they had two daughters, Carney and Wendy. Both of them went on to uh, have their own musical career, right. Wilson Phillips. Wilson with, Phillips, um, yeah. Who's the Phillips girl? Uh, China. Another China, China Phillips, Phillips, yeah. Yeah, so the three of them had their own group, Wilson Phillips. They could kind of relate to... Um, basically having a shitty dad. Um, So Murray Wilson, 1966, he's managing the band, antagonizing everybody around him. People were like, he created so many problems. He would constantly be in the recording studio. He would try to like adjust, like he would try to produce it. And they'd be like, get out of, like, get out of here. You don't know what you're doing. He wanted them to do like a Lawrence Welk type sound. Um, He wanted Brian's music to be the way he wanted it to be. He didn't want Brian to do whatever he wanted. And so finally, at one point, Brian's like, you are lost. And so you are not coming to any more sessions. He's like, he, you know, his dad's a tough guy. And his attitude was, he said to them, you're never going to mount anything. So kind of undermining and whatever they were doing, but trying to control it. They basically, at that point, too, the guys said, he can't come on tour with us. They took a vote in the band 5-0 to zero, yeah. that Murray could no could not be on tour with them. It was just too much. And they in nine, 2010, they found a copy of a letter that he wrote to Brian in May of 1965. And it was right around the time he was doing writing Help Me Rhonda. Mm-hmm. It was topping the charts. He was starting, Brian was starting to work on Pet Sounds. And he, Brian had just said that he wasn't going to be touring with the band anymore. He had just kind of come out with that. So this is the letter his dad wrote to him. So what it what this letter is, is like this huge criticism. He appears to have reached the end of his rope about his children's behavior and their refusal to let to let him control them. Right. So he's the dad's pissed. Right. So he says, it's become very apparent to me that the family cannot exist under the worrisome and trying conditions that have been going on for the last five or six years. I think the time has come for us to face facts in the eye. And then he talks that um, it's his belief that his mother was too indulgent of them and that she ruined them. 
and it's her fault for the way she raised them. He says, although Audrey, with two E's, did not realize what she was doing, she was trying to raise you boys like almost girls, just as she was raised by her mother. And although from time to time she took a coat hanger to you boys or bawled you out when you did something she felt was wrong, none of her corrections means a lot to you or was too effective because you only compare the more strict punishment that I could render as a stronger human being. He sounds like a a peach of a guy, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, real sweet. And then he goes on, talks about his son's moral failings, how they've corrupted him, how stupid their approach to art is and they're idiots with their business. And then he says, no matter how many hit songs you write or how many hundreds of thousands of dollars you may earn, you will find when you finish the short cycle of business success that you didn't do it honestly. And for this reason, you're going to suffer remorse. He concludes by saying the temptations are too great for young men who will not take honest direction and have boldly flaunted the laws of the land. Well, honest direction and, you know, knowing what good direction is. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I mean, he's not completely off base when you read stories of their tours. Right. I mean, they were like going from orgy to orgy. I mean, it was like it was pretty right. crazy. There's lots of drugs. It was tons of partying. So you see that. But his anger was. Yeah. But when you get into. Like the music into the, you know, going into the studio and trying to, right. like, directing maybe some of their social things and, yeah. you know, things like that. Well, you can you can look at it and say, I mean, here's the dad worried about him, right? Right. So the dad's like, you guys, I'm worried about you. You're doing too many drugs. Right. You're partying too hard. But I, I that's look, not where it's coming right. from. Right? I look at it as, like, um, you know, in athletics, uh, you have athletic directors that will... You know, the good ones will tell you how to help you run your program, but not necessarily come in and say, hey, you should be running this play. Right. Or you should be doing this. Right. You know, he would have been better served to help them um, on the outside kind of stuff, the yeah. outskirts, instead of the technical stuff. And that's where, you know, Brian drew the line. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, kind of ruined the relationship. Yeah, and he wanted to control everything, and right. that's the problem. And you have to know your limit, your own limitations, and what you're good at, and you know that that's that's the difference. But he was bothered by the fact that he couldn't come in and manipulate this and control this. He's a control freak, right? Oh, I've seen that. Um, you know, and I, it had um, had I drafted a letter like the Brian Wilson and the rest of the band did uh, for parents, I might still be coaching today. What do you mean? Well, because uh, in the in the stands, the parents try to control their kids and try to give them direction during games, right. and um, you know it doesn't have right. the team's best interest. Right. So when you the when the coach is calling a play and telling you what to do, and then your dad's yelling "box out, box right. out, box out" right. when you told the kid to, right, <laughs> just giving specific instructions instead right. of just giving encouragement. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know me. I had to remove myself from many situations. Yeah. Well, so did I. Yeah. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> Completely. I won't miss that. It's mm. it's sad that the parents end up getting you out of it when the kids are so amazing. The kids, the kids try you. But, I mean, in this case, like, is he as creative? Is he as driven mm-hmm. without a little craziness in his life? Okay, so and, we get Because you back- see a lot of... Uh, a lot of these guys that have these types of hardships, as you and I would look at them at, but, you know, they're very successful yes. probably because of it. 
Or in spite of it. I don't know. No, but I, I, I agree with that. That We've talked about many artists who do have to suffer for your art. Right. I think you do. I think that's the theme of this podcast, right? If yeah. I remember yeah, correctly. Kind of, well, okay. I mean, I, I feel like there's that suffering creates something and causes something. Yes. And we, we, Steve and I talked about that too, about an, an album that would come out. Like the, sec, the first album, they, they suffered for so long to get that out. And the second album, you're like, huh? Right. They didn't. They're not suffering anymore. Right. You know. So there's something to be said Eating for at better restaurants. And yeah. Drinking better booze. Yeah. Not sleeping in the bus. Right. So then, Pet Sound. So that was one of the albums. I don't. Not a, again. I'm not a huge fan. Steve Dahl used to play. Right. Pet Sounds. He oh. used to be on a lot with Steve Dahl. I know. I'll get to that correctly. too. Yeah. 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 One of our favorite. I almost band. like yesterday. Um. At, well, you you probably don't know. Um, I had a little accident down here where I was trying to move our CD player. No, excuse me, our CD uh, case. Wait, you, you our A track or our CD? No, no. Well, you bought me a new CD player and uh, record player. Right. So let well, let let's clarify that. I bought you a record player that has a CD that player. Had a CD <laughs> player buy. and a cassette player. <laughs> a CD player. So I took the CD players out of the archives. And um, the entire stand collapsed, mm. and all of our CDs were all over the place. Oh, no. So I put them back together in alphabetical order, best of my ability, and I had Endless Summer in my hand, mm. and I was about to play it and sit down and play a little um, uh, PlayStation Golf yeah, and listen to Endless Summer, but then something called me upstairs, and I never got around to it. Huh. Just yesterday, after and not, I, you know, well, I did have that conversation with Steve about yeah, but uh, reason, pet sounds. Right? So that's all the right. signs coming all together. This, this week is, yeah. have been, Beach Boys have been on my I mind. was also trying to buy you pet sounds for the record player, yes. and I couldn't get a copy of it. So when the quarantine's up, maybe we can go to a record store That would and be find great. One. I would yeah. like that on vinyl. Yeah. What else do you want on vinyl? What other records do you feel like you want? Hmm. Probably just some of the the ones that I remember listening to as a kid. Yeah, me too. That were, you know, I I only remember. Well, I remember just about every vinyl album I had. There there was only a handful of them. I remember I had Grease, mm-hmm. the soundtrack. Yeah. Grease. I don't know who got me that, but I remember my brother Jim bought me Billy Joel Fifty Second Street okay. and I Stranger. I had the Billy Joel Glass Houses. Uh, I believe he bought those both mm-hmm. for me, or Aww. maybe he bought one for Ronnie and one for my brother Ronnie and one for me. But um, uh, whatever was Ronnie's was actually mine too, because we, you know, we um, we lived together for such a long time, and I play his albums all the time. And the one I remember the most was, uh, and one that I would want on vinyl is, uh, I believe, uh, "Meet the Beatles." Oh. "Meet the Beatles" or "With the Beatles." Okay. One is an American release, and okay. one is a UK release. I, but that's one of my favorites that I would like to okay. have back. Xanadu was one of the I t- listened to all the time. I mentioned that what was it the the Sticks album? Mm-hmm. What was the Sticks one? I don't know. I hated Sticks. Paradise, Paradise Theater, Paradise so, Theater, Paradise right, Theater. Right, 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 oh right. God, my sister and I would listen to that. Yeah. The Billy Joel. We had a Billy Joel album. We had Thin Liz. No, Thin Lizzy. 
Thin Lizzy. Did we have Thin Lizzy? Boys are back in town because I remember that. And then we had a Bruce Springsteen. We had the one with. Um, my brother Michael was in a garage band. Yeah. And uh, I just remember that's the only thing I ever remember is when I'd go there to watch them. They played one Thin Lizzy song yeah. over and over. I think that's the only song I've ever seen them Thin play. Thin Lizzy, so good. Yes. What's the one I love? The um, uh, Cowboy. I don't. You probably love the dumbest song that they've ever written because I don't. I don't. You and your choices, ELO. You have the worst. Not true. The worst choices of the favorite songs. Okay. So pet sounds, right? So basically, they. A lot of people feel like 1966 was the peak of his creativity with pet sounds. That they. He says that that was the greatest part of his life. That that time when he was writing that. So again, he's starting to really kind of experiment musically and chemically. So he's trying to push the band sound beyond kind of this light, accessible, sun and fun formula. And again, that's sort of the problem I had. I just felt like it was so poppy. And when I was super getting into music, I was all about the dark, the drama, the cure, the Smiths. The... Right, right. So music to me, like the Beatles and Beach Boys, yeah, I felt that was pop and I didn't that, like it. All the music at the time was like that until... Pet sounds. Right, right. That's why, you know, Yes. he is who he is. Yeah. So my focus of him was just that, the pet, or the prior to pet sounds right, stuff. Right, right. If you don't know his whole, you know, catalog, yeah. I should say, uh, you know, you just know the popular ones that you hear on your top 40 radio, and you don't get too many of the pet sound songs Right. on that. So he said he was inspired by the Beatles' Rubber Soul album. And the Beatles were then inspired by him. Yeah. Right. So he his goal was that every single song mattered. So it wouldn't be like, oh, here's the one, the, po- the popular one. He wanted every single song to be important and to matter. And that would make people feel loved. And so he really kind of expanded the sound effects, classical elements, kind of folk yeah. elements, um, even Gershwin right. influence in there as well. Mm. And so, like, some of the songs from Pet Sounds, God Only Knows, which right. actually Paul McCartney said that is the one, like, the, his favorite song. Ever. Yeah, I, I um, can see that. Brian had a hard time. He wanted to, to write a song with the word God in it. He didn't know how it would be perceived. Right. Especially because, back then. Yeah, because God Bless America was probably the only song right. that they had it. Right. So he didn't know how to write that. Another, I Wouldn't It Be Nice is on there as well. What I what I loved about um, that and what I love about the record player that you got me. Yes. Is that something that we've gotten away from, especially with our... Uh, Amazon uh, Echo and mm-hmm. you know you just call out songs is that we don't get to listen to album sides anymore right. yeah and you know the Beach Boys and Brian in particular wrote music to be an album mm-hmm. and they all kind of flowed and connected and had meaning mm-hmm. uh, together right which a lot of artists do but um, you know we don't uh, you know we don't really use that format anymore yeah and you think about the transition from an album so you'd get an album you'd listen to the whole thing you'd listen to both sides so you're in your mind what song comes next is what's next on the album right and then we transition to cassettes where then you then you can kind of make a mix right you can create mixtapes where you can say well i've got this Beatles song and then i'm going to put this beach boy song and then you can kind of mix things up and then you have that then you have a little more control over your sets and your you know the soundtrack and now it's it's a little different, whereas you don't have that. We were talking about your your nephew, Jim, who is on that podcast called, you know, Mixtape. And people talk about 
what's you know like five songs they put together kind of how that expresses who they are um the same way that a group would put together an album to express who they are you know and i don't know if that's what's happening now right with musicians yeah i i don't know only because i don't get the music in that format anymore right i mean like my new favorite band um cagey elephant I just, uh, you know, I just heard a lot of their stuff. I've seen them at shows together, you know, a bunch of shows, and I've heard their music on the radio. But I, until this last one, Social Cues, I never had a full album. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it does go together. It yeah. does have a theme, it, you know, um, and it's been fun to listen to the whole thing yeah. all the way through. Yeah. Once again, I think the, you know, one of the pros. Uh, there's not many pros of a pandemic, but the time that we're spending at home, yeah, I'm starting to find, you know, instead of just watching 80 hours of TV, you know, now I sit back and listen to an album. Um, and I'm really going back to appreciating that again. I'm glad you have so much free time because I do not. Well, I am getting my work done. I am teaching as well. Uh, I just don't have as many essays as you do. Yeah, I'm not able to turn this into um, me being creative. This is the first time I'm able to to do that. Hold on a second. I I hear our dogs and our children. Our children came out of their rooms. (laughs) (laughs) Shh, everyone be quiet. Everyone make sleep. Don't let them know we're down here. (laughs) Jeez, they ruin everything. (laughs) Them and the dogs. Okay. So we're talking about pet sounds and what's on that. And so it's the the, comp, the complexity arrangements, innovative recording techniques, the um, vo- vocal harmonies. And again, most many critics say it's the greatest records ever. Um, Rolling Stones has it in their top 500. Again, Paul McCartney yeah, said. two, right? Pardon? Number they two. Out too. It's number uh, two. Stones well, no, it's, they rank pet sounds as number two yeah. out of okay. 500. Wow. Rolling, Rolling Stone, Stone magazine. magazine. Yeah, I believe that. Okay, I yeah, not that. Mick Jagger. No, but they hung out together, right? Didn't they? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. I'm sure they hung out with a lot of people. And so, actually, Paul McCartney said it's his, you know named as his favorite album. Actually, he said it influenced Sgt. Pepper, mm-hmm. their album Sgt. Pepper. And God only knows, he says, when those beautiful songs ever written, according to Paul McCartney. We like Paul McCartney. We saw him. And the song that our child was born to. What? Right back in the USSR. Oh. <laughs> is that Cal- it's California Girls? Oh, that's right. Oh, right. I didn't even think about the, see the, all the connections. Yes. Okay. Our second child was born C-section, and they were playing music, and it was um, back in the USSR. Oh. And I just remember looking at you, going, "Is this a <laughs> right? This is back the, what a weird song to be born to." Yeah. Right. Oh. And it was over before the song was over. Yeah, for you it was. All it the was complaining was quick about. for you. Very quick for you. Yeah. But basically, what else? So, oh, so this is this kind of gets to a little bit more of the infighting. What's the issues going on? So, ironically, even though it's super successful later, Capitol Records and the the band themselves kind of resisted it in his musical direction, and they were like, they don't we really don't really get it, and they just felt it was too much. It was too progressive. It was too. And do you know how they came up with the name Pet Sounds? Um. 
No. So my, no, I do. I okay, do, go ahead. But I forgot. No, I forgot. We just talked about Did this. You? Yes. Do you want me yes. to wait? Well, we remember because we watched, this was one of the many shows that we watched during this past month. Who? You and I. Was I with you? I believe so. What Elise show? and Body. Um, the show about California, about the, the mountains and the, uh, what was that? All the music scene. Oh, the mamas and the papas. In that, uh, that area. And, um... The one with um, Bob Dylan's uh, kid. Oh, Jacob Dylan was interviewing right. people. All about... these artists from this area in California, yeah. uh, Southern California, this mountain region uh, that a bunch of these artists lived and hung out. Yeah. And that was the uh, the Pet Sounds era. Came from that. So they interview. Oh, that. it's like Jackson Brown. Did they have Jackson Brown? I the they name have... of that is, yeah. Yeah, that was good. That was, was that a Netflix thing that we yes. used? Okay. Was that me? I was that there, was right? That was you, yes. Okay. So the Pet Sounds, the title was born when band member Mike Love quipped, who's going to hear this shit? Right, right, the right. Because he thought it was, yeah, yeah, he thought it was really bad. Right. <laughs> That's why they got the name, yeah. So they call it Pet Sounds. Right. <laughs> so right. it. A lot of people feel it was just ahead of its time. It was. It didn't sell well. Got mixed reviews, and um, it definitely put more of a strain between Brian Wilson and the other members of the band, particularly Mike Mike Love. But during Pet Sounds, Wilson had been working on another song, which he held back from on from putting on it because he didn't feel like it was complete. And the song was called Good Vibrations. Mm-hmm. And it was actually inspired by his mom because she said about people giving off vibrations. And she said um, about that was just kind of a comment about positive people and happy people. And and he thought that was kind of a neat idea. And so um, he had been recorded in like a modular style, separately written sections and then individually tracked and then spliced together. Again, this whole new way of recording um, much differently than what anyone else had been doing. And so his concept for the new album was more of the same, like total departure from standard live tape performances that were typical of studio recordings at the time. Right. I can only imagine what, let's say that, if they were that age at that time period with our technology now. Yeah. Oh, what, what you know, they could do. Or would it just really blown their mind? Because he was always chasing something to yeah. make it sound better and right. different. And... Yeah. And you too, you know, I mean, you and I, we've, our friend um, Blaze is a music producer. And I, I didn't truly understand the role of a music producer mm-hmm. that how much creative control they, that they have. Right. I, you know, to me, it was like, oh, the artist comes in, they sing, and then that's it. It's like, I didn't realize that you're, you're mm. affecting what music, what, what you're going to add in or how this track is going to go or what what music's going to be behind it what instruments you're going to include i didn't really get that role until it reminds me of yet another netflix uh show that i watched this past month the one that you fell asleep on uh the one about lou reed iggy pop and david bowie (laughs) it was poorly done it was really poorly um, done how do you make them boring yeah yeah that's hard to do but um, David Bowie was a producer on Lou Reed's album, by name, is what this thing was saying. Um, because he also brought in his guitar player from uh, Spiders at the time. And I forget his name. 
but he was the guy that knew music theory. He was the guy that uh, knew the chords and knew everything about music. So he was there with David. Mm -hmm. David was pretty much, was it turned out to be just babysitting Lou Reed, who was a loose cannon and needed to be stroked and kept in place. And, you know, so the the producing he did was to keep Lou Reed's head on during the recording. And the actual music producing was done by... Trevor Boulder, yeah. Trevor Boulder was the... Trevor Boulder, okay. I believe was the guitar player that did... Yeah, so it wasn't that I wasn't interested in those people. Those people are super interesting. It was just the... It was so boring. The the whoever was, you know, had written it, or the voiceover was just ridiculously boring. Did you ever see Lou Reed live? No. No, I just... Um, I remember in college, uh, the Columbia Records, uh, the... That was one of my albums or CDs at the time I got for which a penny one? was New York, Oh, okay. which um, one of my still to this day, one of my favorite albums. And when I really started getting into uh, lyrics, how important the story was in the song. And I don't know, you know, why it spoke to me, a kid from Justice, about the, the hard streets of New York. Right. Uh, at that time, but um, it did. Yeah. It was, um, I just loved hearing someone, poets, right, turning turning things into music. That's, and that's a super interesting time, all that with, you know, Bowie and Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and um, that whole group and what was happening in New York at that time. Super fun. Right. Um, okay, so we're talking about Good Vibrations. So Brian, basically, he thought of this song as a smaller psychedelic version of Rhapsody in Blue. Not, I don't really get that, but he recorded it in four different studios and ultimately it cost him $50,000 to record that one song, which in today's money is about $400,000 right. for one song. Right. It did go to number one. Uh, he called it his little pocket symphony and he was super happy with that. Right. Universal success. I do, I do wonder and, you know, at like... Could he have got? Could have been that successful if he kept it to one or two studios, still right. instead of four, or you one. Know, I do have a problem. What's the difference between the studios? Right, right, right. right. But that—that's the kind of stuff that he would that mattered right. to him, right? Right. That there's certain studios would have a a different sound. So does he need four studios? Right. What's or is that the the LSD? Uh, that's talking? what um, turned me off about some of these bands that you go see. Um, and you too, I love, I've seen them more than, you know, any other band, I think, but you know, edge plays like 17 different guitars during a show. Right. I mean, why is that necessary? And then I go with, see some bands who just, I love and put on a great show and right. he plays one broken down. Oh, uh, like Willie, look at Willie Nelson's guitar, guitar right? Right. Oh my yeah. God, it's broken. That should be condemned. Right. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That it's got the right Masking sound. tape. And, yeah. Right. Yeah, part of it's broken. Love that. So after Good Vibrations, so he's starting to work on this next project, Smile. And he said this is going to be a teenage symphony to God. Mm. Okay. Really? So what was, basically what was important, what he did was he was creating these new forms, starting something new, the genre blending, and that's what people found is so creative. So basically that their initial sound was kind of that four freshman style vocal harmonies, this Chuck Berry guitar riffs, and then some Phil Spector thrown in. 
And then what people decide, people were, were commenting about his, and they said he had this gift to combine it with a craft. Not many people had that craft in pop music at that time. And he could be a mastermind because he knew music so thoroughly. The thing that was great about Pet Sounds is here's a guy who could craft something that was almost symphonic. Before the Beatles, before Sgt. Pepper, he was already doing incredible things, expanding the boundaries of rock and pop and what they could be. And then that's when they started talking about like his visionary eloquence and starting to work on Smile. And this is kind of where things start to fall apart a little more intensely. Like, and he's really not touring with them. He's not. But the drugs are definitely kicking in. This is about the time where he puts the um, sandbox and the tent in his living room. Is it because it wasn't well received at first? Because what wasn't? Pet sound. That wasn't necessarily, he was very happy with it. It was then he then started to work on Smile and that's what kind of knocked him down was this trying to create the album Smile. So, Got it. so like I mentioned, he has the, um, starts to work on Smile and then things just kind of start to fall apart. There's lots of reasons they feel like his mind slipping there's a, a story about one of the recording sessions for Smile. His state of mind was just constantly changing and odd. During one of the recording sessions, there's a song that he wrote called The Elements Fire about Mrs. O'Leary's cow. And it's about the cows during the Chicago yeah, Fire. I'm drawing a blank. I can't even picture like the album cover well, hold on. or anything. So, so it's not my fault? No, because it didn't, it didn't, it didn't come out. Oh, okay. Good, good. <laughs> so... He asked the janitor to start a small fire in a bucket so that the musicians could smell smoke as they worked because that would inspire them because of the song. Of and then he asked the musicians if they'd wear plastic fight children's fire helmets to put in them in the spirit. But instead, it really made people like creeped out and like right. darken the mood. And then there was a series of fires that were occurring in the neighborhood during several of their sessions. Oh, and he freaked out thinking that the they energy from the song oh. was creating these fires. Oh. He thought he was creating these fires and that spooked him and, and he stopped it. And this was the it. time he was doing LSD, right? I don't, why? Why would you think? <laughs> I thought maybe that, uh, you know, they would think that he was doing these fires to create this uh, buzz. Well, he felt <laughs> his power. Right. That's even was. worse, That's I even think. worse, Yeah. yeah. So then conflict within the group is growing, personal problems, they're, they're actually, you know, they're just, they're fighting a lot. Um, originally, this scheduled to release this album, they kept pushing it back. And finally, he just said he was just plagued so much with alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, and LSD that he just couldn't, he couldn't get the album done. And so while he's struggling with these personal problems, the Beach Boys are still touring without him. Every once in a while he would come, but they're just kind of relying more and more on their nostalgia and their old reputation, and those old songs. And even though they continued to record, they didn't really have a ton of involvement from Brian and really not great results from what they're recording. So he's kind of pulling out of okay. his influence in the group. The band's relying on their old reputation for the touring. So Smile really could have been kind of been the end for him. He he poured his heart into this album and it was this huge project that just completely crashed and so he at this point he's about like 24 25 like he you know it's like think right he's tapping out at 24 he's done right like he can't he's peaked right. they said you know this is people would understand because of how you know intense this was but um 
they, they felt because he's just taken so many risks with this music that he was still kind of still forced to kind of continue. And but basically because Smile just devastated him so much, he couldn't really turn it around. He couldn't like bounce back from that. So his bandmates basically kind of rallied when he just went into this super descent. Right. So this is when he starts to write songs. He's in bed for days. His health is just horrible. Seesawing for the next 20 years. He's his health is terrible. And basically, late years later, they he comes back to the Smile album, tries to kind of record, go to back to the old recordings. And people who have listened to the the like the sessions mm-hmm. are like, all you can hear is him saying, "Do it again, do it again, do it again, do it." Like he was so, it wasn't like he was just out of it and goofy. He was just he could he needed to get this right and get something, and he wasn't yeah. getting it. And so that's just like this, you hear his voice over and over insisting, just one more take, one more take, one more take. So there's a ton of passion that's still apparent uh, at this point that, that, you know, when people go back and listen to that. Um, So basically, when they talk about like rock and roll artists at this time, they're kind of disposable. He, again, because he took such creative control, wrote the songs and directed this, they they started to refer to him as Stalin of the studio. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and just soup, you know, really kind of this expansive, imaginistic type of music. And one of the people, someone who worked with him said, you have to have what I call persistent obstinacy. And she says, it's a willingness to say, I don't care what you think. I'm going to make this happen. And again, that brings me back to what I love about artists who are like, I need to do this in this way. And I can't stop until I make this happen. Well, Joe Stalin did consider himself this shining light of humanity. Yeah. And he, no, people don't realize he had a great voice. I think I had that (laughs) quote on my dorm room door. (laughs) Yes. Uh. He he had an amazing voice. And he was a big surfer. Uh, Yes. A lot of people don't know that about Stalin. Big surfer. So this, so we're talking about like 67 to 75. This is kind of the era. So when Smile Session, that Smile album gets canceled, Brian says, we pulled out of that pace. I, he says, because I was about ready to die. I was trying so hard. And all of a sudden I decided not to try anymore and not try and do great things with such big musical things. And we had had so much fun. And he says that era was so great. It was unbelievable. Personally, spiritually, everything was great. And I didn't have any paranoia feelings, paranoia feelings. But then he's like, but I had to stop. It was just too much. So 67, his life is really verge of decline. They cancel this smile. Again, he's in his Bel Air home. The band's going there to try to record there in his home. Again, that's where the, the brings the sand so what they did was they built he had carpenters build a retaining wall around the perimeters of his dining room eight loads of sand were brought in he's got his piano lowered into the beach he thought if he was on the beach it would inspire him to create a lot of people feel like that's kind of the point where they just kind of really started to slip big time was right about that time so still psychologically overwhelmed by the cancellation of smile and imminent birth of Carney and the looming financial insolvency of the Beach Boys, his 
directorship within the band became tenuous. Again, this so this sort of back and forth with them, with him wanting to do all this stuff and then but not being able to and trying to and then being overwhelmed and and not being able to handle it. It was just sort of this back and forth. And he's they're not really producing the way he was. This is about the time that he first went to a, a hospital for a brief period of time to get some treatment for his mental health issues. At one point, he's he did go on a tour in Europe and. During the interview, he says, we owe everyone money. And if we don't pick ourselves off our backsides and hit and get a hit record soon, we'll be in worse trouble. I've always said, be honest with your fans. I don't see why I should lie and say that everything is rosy when it's not. So people were, the band was pissed about that, too. They're like, what are you doing? Why are you saying that? Right. 1969, Murray Wilson, his dad, sold Sea of Tunes, which is the publishing company. And Sea of Tunes owned the entire catalog of the Beach Boy songs. So 140, 150 songs, including eight, 80 songs that Mike Love had co-written. There was another issue, too. So Mike Love's his cousin. Right. And Mike Love would get the record and he'd look at the liner notes and he's like, well, I wrote this song. Why is my name not on it? And Brian would say, oh, don't worry. My dad will take care of it. Mm-hmm. And Mike's like, well, it's my uncle. He's going to he's not going to screw me over. Right, right, right. So that happened again and again and again. Mike Love's name's not on a lot of these, and so he doesn't get any credit for this. So at this point, 1969, Murray agrees to sell this Sea of Tunes, so all of their entire catalog of records, of songs, to A&M, and they paid $700,000 for the entire catalog, and the payment went in cash to Murray. To Murray. None of the band members got any of it. Right. So that's not good. So basically that kind of terminates the capital contract. The band has a new contract that stipulated that Brian Wilson had to be involved in all the albums. And that they said that was a problem, too, because, again, he was they couldn't really count on him couldn't count on, right. at that point. So they said that the actually illnesses and stuff. Yeah, that right. made it worse. Here's my sidebar. So we're at 1969. And this is where I went down a rabbit hole. How old is he at this point? 27. 27 with two children. Right around, probably one or two at this point. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just, I think Carney was just born. It's maybe 67 she was born. Okay, so here's my crazy sidebar. This is where you know, you know how excited I'm going to be. <laughs> so. Does this become a murder mystery? Yes! No! Yes! Get yeah, out. Not even a murder mystery, a cult. No way. Patrick, Patrick what are my two right. loves? You. Right. And murder. murder. Right. Right? Yeah, that's it. True crime. Right. Patrick. Okay. I don't remember this yet. Oh, shit. Pat, I was so excited because I was like, okay, I get to talk about what I really want to talk about. So here's our sidebar. So we've got, you know, the, the we've got Brian Wilson, his brother right. Dennis, his brother Carl. And I mentioned before that Dennis was a bit of a partier. And they, they involved had... with the Mansons? Yes. Yes. Okay. See, it's all coming back. Okay, so here's the story. You want to hear the story? Yes, please. Okay. Too bad, because I would tell it anyways. I'd tell it. If you left, I would still tell it. So Dennis Wilson and Charlie Manchin, Manchin, Manchin. Charles Manson, have a brief and bizarre friendship. Dennis Wilson and Charles Manson spent the summer of 1968 living together and dreaming about the musical possibilities that lay ahead. Right. This all sets the groundwork for all of those murders. This right, this relationship. Okay, good. Okay, good. So, nineteen sixty-eight. I mean, not good for those people who got murdered. No, not Just good for them. Good for the story. So, Dennis Wilson's divorce from his first wife. I think he ended up having five. No, Dennis didn't have five. Did he have five? 
Yeah, Dennis, I think, had five wives. He's living the high life, this beautiful house, Sunset Boulevard outside L.A. And that spring, he stops to pick up two female hitchhikers on the Sunset Strip, invites them home for milk and cookies, which, you know, who hasn't? Right. And after eating, he got to talking about his experience with, with the Maharishi, Transcendental Meditation, and the women said that they had a spiritual guru, too. And his name is Charlie. Not long afterward, Wilson returns home to find the lights on, a school bus parked outside, and sees a small man walking towards him and asks this guy, are you going to hurt me? And he says, do I look like I'm going to? And he drops down and kisses Dennis Wilson's feet, and it's Charles Manson. Oh, so he ends up sharing this home with, with Charles Manson, and then he introduces him to his industry buddies, right? The recording guys, right. okay? So although... Dennis Wilson doesn't realize it yet. He had opened his house to Manson and 20 or so female companions for an indeterminate length of time. At first, he didn't mind. He's pretty free-spirited, and he's, like, used to picking up hitchhikers and partying with all kinds of people. And Manson, he thought, was kind of an interesting person. He was a musician. I remember and, back before the pandemic when you used to be able to do that? Yeah. Just when go you just pick up Pick up hitchhikers, hitchhikers and cult leaders right. and have them over for the yeah. summer? The good old days. One less thing we it's taken from us. Yes. One more thing. Right. On the con side of the pandemic. One of the cons. So he so Dennis just thinks he's very interesting. He's like he's a musician. He's got interesting, unusual ideas, how the world works. That's one way to describe Manson. And it didn't hurt that he Manson would share his L S D. He bring a lot of L S D and his women. Right who would do whatever he said. So they were more than willing to have sex with Dennis Wilson whenever, wherever he wanted. So at the time, Manson was trying to get a record contract from Wilson. And so Wilson introduces him to friends in the industry, executives, and there's kind of, you know, not great results. So Manson particularly tries to impress Wilson's friend, Terry Melcher. Okay, this name's going to be important. Terry Melcher is the son of actress Doris Day, and um, he was an influential producer at Columbia Records. But Melcher, when he meets Charles Manson, is like, I, I got a bad This feeling. guy's bad news, right? This guy's bad news. He's got this super intense stare. He's dirty, and he's like, do, he doesn't invite him to his home, Okay, which is what he's trying to get to happen okay right. so manson wants to be invited to his home he wants to record with this guy he wants this guy to produce an album so what happened then is manson does record for the beach boys label so the other beach boys are super creeped out by him they're like oh god this guy's weird mike love actually writes in a memoir about how he went over to dennis wilson's house for dinner and he finds everyone there naked they're all having this orgy lsd and he's like this is creepy and he goes upstairs to take a shower and manson comes barging into the shower and yells at him for leaving and he was like okay that's creepy however mike love is joined in the shower by squeaky from squeaky from best known for attempting to assassinate president gerald ford right yes so she does join him in the shower one of Manson's famous followers. So Dennis Wilson, he still believes that Manson has his musical talent, so he sets up... for a band, Squeaky From. Wasn't there yeah. a band, Squeaky From? I don't know. If not, maybe we should start Put, one. Write that down. Put that in right, our book. Right, as band names. our potential band names. Yeah. What would they be a cover band for? Squeaky From. I don't know. We can do maybe... Beatles? We can bring to life some of Manson's maybe tunes. Maybe Beatles. Be- maybe a right. Beach Boy. No, maybe a Beatles cover band, right? Could uh, that be? Because he was, because he was so obsessed with the Beach Boys or the Beatles. Beatles. 
Yeah, I think about that. So Dennis still believes in him. He sets up this recording session for the label. But there's a problem during the session because Manson pulls out a knife and tries to stab the studio engineer because he kind of because I don't know. If, I don't know if you know a lot about Charles Manson, but he's crazy. Right. Right. And so this really didn't go well. So that's sort of bad. And so that kind of blows his chance to get, right. you know, kind of be a regular one knife incident. And they, everyone his musical him. career could have been a whole lot different. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe he just held off on pulling out the knife. By the end of the summer, they, the Manson family, you know, so Charlie and all his girls had gone through an estimated $100,000 worth of food, medical bills, and damages to the property. And so Dennis is kind of like, yeah, I've kind of had enough of these guys. So what, what do you think he would do? What would be the best way to handle this? What did he do, or yeah, what, what did do I Wilson think would do? be the? Well, yeah, I'm he moves out. <laughs> guess, right, that he doesn't he just handle it the yeah. right way. No, he just moves out. Doesn't confront them. Doesn't say anything. He of just, his own home. <laughs> well, right. he was renting this house, right. and this lease was going to expire. So he literally just flip and moves out. And so the landlord then had to evict the family. Now we laugh, but we did the same exact thing in our first apartment. Who? Me and you. Yes. No, we didn't. Your brother moved out without telling the landlord, and we moved in. Right, but we continued to pay the bills. It wasn't... Right, right. But, you know, we told the landlord afterwards that we were his new tenants. That guy was a dick. <laughs> Just saying, we, we shouldn't be so judgy on Manson when we did the oh, same thing. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beg to differ. Well, just on that. Sense. We didn't destroy anything. We were not, you know. Uh, yeah. Did we, we get the security deposit on yes, that? Yes, we oh, did. Okay. We were good. Right. That was. A, I love that apartment. Yes. That was a great apartment. The salad days, honey. Right. Remember those days. Before? I do. I do. That was fun. <sighs> okay, so he moves out, and so basically the landlord has to evict them. He also, they say, Wilson kind of got back at Manson because he was pissed. You know, he spent a hundred thousand dollars. You know, think about a hundred thousand dollars back in the late sixties. That's a shitload of money. So it's he gets back right at him now. by, he takes one of his songs, Cease to Exist, and he recrafts it into a song, Never Learn Not to Love, and he claims sole credit for the track. So there's stuff happening here that you're kind of like, oh, God, Dennis, what did you do? Right. What did What did you set off, you know? Basically, their friendship is mostly over at that point. They would see each other occasionally, but in November... Wilson told Manson that one of his songs would appear on the upcoming Beach Boys album. So Manson is like psyched about this. Right. But then he finds out that the truth about that he took his song and that it wasn't he doesn't get any credit for it. Right. So he's really pissed. And it's even like a B side to the other to another song. Right. So he's really pissed. So once so he, he told them that he was gonna use his song, but they didn't give him the credit. No, and they rewrote, they redid it. And they right. made it their own. Right. And so. So they ripped him off. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So initially Manson, Manson. Uh, walks up to Wilson with a bullet and just said, you know, shows it to him and says, uh, you better watch your kids. Ooh. So uh, Dennis beats the shit out of him. Dennis was a big guy and yeah. a strong guy. Right. So he beats the crap out of him. And Mike Love, at you know, at this point is like, you better watch out. He's. I've seen this guy shoot people. Like I shot, I saw him shoot someone. This guy, you don't mess with him. So 
Wilson, they say Wilson felt guilty about his association with the infamous criminal. And by the summer of 69, after his long-awaited audition for Melcher, had failed to produce the record deal he was expecting. Manson decided that it was time to ignite Helter Skelter, the race wars he warned would wipe out civilization. So Dennis Wilson had set up him to meet this Melcher, right? This Terry Melcher. Right. This music producer. It never happened. Right. Because Melcher was like, you're creepy. So Manson's like, I'm going to go to this guy's house. Right. Okay. August 8th, Manson orders his followers to kill everyone at Terry Melcher's house. Melcher had moved out months earlier. Right. And has new tenants there, Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate. A few friends. And um, basically the Mansons go to Terry Terry's house. He's not there. He's moved out. And they kill everyone but there. But they kill the people who are there. Right. So, so it's all Dennis Wilson's fault. Dennis Wilson. I mean, it. right? I right. Mean, can't, he set this up, right? He, he lit the fuse. A few months later, when Wilson learns about the rest of the with the rest of the world that his friend had been behind this killings, he couldn't believe it. Right? It's this horrible, this beautiful California sunshine, fun and love right. is now this horribly black days. Mike Love then realizes in absolute horror that his children had been left with Susan Atkins, who was later convicted for her role in the murders. She was the one who held down pregnant Sharon Tate oh, as she was stabbed to death. Right. And so he realizes that she was his kid's babysitter. Small world. Yeah. Small world. She was convicted in eight murders, and she was our babysitter. And he is absolutely just devastated by that. Yeah. So other people have noted that after that, Will's, that just the guilt that he carried with that, with that association, and for the rest of his life, and they feel like that fueled his self-destructive behavior that led to his drowning at age 39 in 1983. Oh, jeez. Okay, so I think maybe we could end here for now. Okay. And then we can do a part two. Are you up for a part two? That's fine. Okay. Because I uh, feel maybe like. Maybe mid-afternoon. I feel I like because <laughs> where does anyone have to go? Right. Because basically we have nothing to do. But nothing. that might be a good stopping point. Okay. So we can pick this up. Right. With so, cocktails next time? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, let's do cocktails. Sounds good to me. So if this is the end of the episode, I just want to say quickly. Thank you for listening, Patrick. Thank you for being here. We'll be back in a little thanks bit. Thanks for having me in studio. <laughs> studio, would you love it? Studio N. So again, thanks, guys. Listen on uh, iTunes, Spotify. If you want more information or pictures or anything or my bio or whatever, you can go to uh, my website, which is thesodramaticpodcast.com. We have, I have a Facebook page, I have an Instagram account, whatever. Just like, right. subscribe, what review. Like, subscribe, review. I want rate, to say that. Rate, rate, subscribe. Okay, okay, you say that. Okay. Right. No, I forgot what it was again. Rate, rate subscribe, and say nice things. And I don't know. Read a review. <laughs> say nice things. Say it, try and it. maybe get a couple of um, advertisers, right? Little sponsors. Who's going to sponsor this? I'm not. I hope someone, because I'm tired of sponsoring <laughs> it. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. So thanks, everyone. Just a reminder that it's okay to be so dramatic.